Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. 9 a.m. in California on March the 27th, the Friday. Uh, now has more coronavirus uh, people sick than anywhere else in the world. The markets are up and down, but one sector of the economy that seems to be, to some extent at least, escaping the crisis, the coronavirus crisis, is the digital sector, uh, which seems to be benefiting in many ways from uh, perhaps the death of, of, of analog industries and the analog world, at least in the short term. John Borthwick, uh, an old friend, a previous guest on the show, is the CEO of Betaworks, one of New York City's leading um, incubators, accelerators, early investors in digital startups, is a keen observer of the digital landscape. John, uh, how's life in New York this morning? Hey, um, good morning, Andrew. It's, um, I mean, it's as good as can be expected. It's sort of, you know, it's COVID day 14 for me. You know, sort of it's, uh, you know, we are, um, we're isolated and isolating and uh, it's a it's a very different it's a very different world. Um, so, but nice to uh, nice to chat with you. Does it represent the death of analog? It seems as if all analog industries pretty much are in freefall. You know, I it's strange. It's uh, because you know back in January, I'm, uh, you know, there's, I have an old friend of mine who lives in Beijing, and he was in quarantine in Beijing, and I talked to him in mid-January, and then I talked to him again in February, and he was there in quarantine, and I kept saying to myself and talking to him about sort of the shifts that were taking place there, and thought to myself, could this really happen here? And it was like, it seemed like it was ine- in- inevitable and logical, but I think that you know, now now it has happened. I think the extremes of, you know, how extreme I did not appreciate it would be, right? And so we've, you know, sort of like, as, as I think about it, there are all of these sort of barriers that we've had in our, uh, in our culture and our behavior, economic barriers, legal barriers between the digital and, you know, be, between going totally digital. And now those have just been shattered. Right. And you think in 50 years, when historians look back at, at this moment, they will see it as really the beginning of the dominance of digital? Yeah, I think that of just like digital, of we, we have now been thrown into the water, like the proverbial frog, and we've just, we've been, it's the, the water is, is digital, and that is what we're living in. Right. So when you think about it, I mean, the most obvious thing is obviously tele, uh, uh, you know, remote work. Uh, and you know that has everybody has you know sort of moved into a completely remote work, but it's also telemedicine, it's also education, it's also media. It's like every piece of the of the world has been thrown into this water, and it ain't going back, right? It it will when this is 
when this is uh, over and we can sort of revert to some sense of normalcy and actually see people and you know, and and go out and socialize, it w- it's going to change again, and it will change. I, I wouldn't say back; it will change forward. Um, but it won't go back to what it was, right? It will never be the same again. I know you're not a spokesman for the tech community, certainly not for Silicon Valley, given that you're based in New York City. But broadly, you talk to a lot of people every day, fellow fellow investors, entrepreneurs, technologists. Is there a way of generalizing their response to this crisis? I mean, I, I, I would say... I, I'd say no. I mean, generalizations are hard here, right? First and foremost, these people are people, and I think that everybody is just dealing with this and struggling with it personally, right? It is just a huge shift in how you relate to uh, how you relate to the world, to the family, to your business, to everything going on around you, right? And there's been businesses that are businesses, digital or analog businesses, that have been transformed and decimated by this, right? And so there's uh, businesses that are. Uh, trying to figure out what the hell to do. Uh, there are also businesses that are just seeing, you know, sort of massive, you know, spikes in uh, in usage and complete transformation in usage of their products. And so there are businesses that are doing well. So we sort of have both ends of the expect- spectrum. It's kind of this bipolar experience where, you know, very few people are in the middle. It's just like it's either working or it's not. And then uh, I would say that, you know, there, there are things on the horizon that everybody has seen that they could never have imagined, right? The degree to which government is going to get involved in the, um, in the welfare of the, um, of, of people, um, and healthcare of people, I think could never have been imagined, you know, two weeks ago. And, um, it's also the degree to which government's going to get involved in, um, in technology and in, and uh, in mediating some of this and and potentially controlling parts of it um, of the uh, sort of technology data landscape, I think could also couldn't have been imagined two weeks ago. So everything is changing, and I think that you know it's hard to generalize any response to it. But people are, you know, uh, people are trying to figure it out. You've been very critical in the last few years about the dangers of these winner-take-all companies like Google and Facebook. Does the crisis, or should this crisis, compound our fears of, of these enormous companies, these trillion-dollar companies? Yeah, I think. I mean, look, you're emphasizing size, and and uh, it is not. It's not size or success which uh, concern concerns me. It is the sort of their their dominance and ownership of so much data, which then in turn gives them the ability to both um, uh, both target and to some extent control behavior on you know hundreds of millions and now billions of people, and so it's just like the scope of their. Uh, ability to be able to use use data, for lack of a better word, to surveil the, you know, the the populace is what concerns me. And and uh, am I more concerned now? I you know I I'm more concerned um, uh, because I think that there's more immediate risk. I'm also concerned that government is going to like uh, you know uh, insert itself in there or grab you know a big piece of that. And so I think that we're at, I think we're at a critical stage where, I mean, we're having to make decisions really fast, right? As a country, and we're having to trust a government um, uh, in making good decisions around 
things that would normally take years to figure out, and they're going to be doing them uh, and making such decisions in um, you know in the wee hours of the night. And I think we're going to you know hopefully we'll make a lot of them right, but we're going to screw some of these up. Some people would argue that technology offers the solution in that it it reveals our movements, and it's the only way we can actually leverage to co- to, to to control the virus. Certainly, the, the the Singapore government and the Chinese government have used digital technology quite aggressively to successfully control uh, the virus. Should that being used? Should but should that being should that be used more in the United States? I I mean look. Six weeks ago, we would have used, we would have talked about how the Chinese government were using that to basically racially profile the Uyghurs and basically control a segment of their population. And now they've successfully used that to monitor and control aspects of spread of this virus. I think that the, you know, we saw Israel this past week, right? Netanyahu basically grabbed, um, you know, control of a whole bunch of um, tracking data. Um, uh, of uh, Israeli citizens. I, I think what we've seen it, so we've seen it in Asia, we've seen it in Israel now, and I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure for that. I think on an anonymized basis, on an aggregate basis, to view patterns and movements of people, that is one thing. But when it gets down to personal data tracking, understanding where you are, what is your sort of, you know, Andrew Keane's profile, your political inclinations, your blood pressure, your temperature. Um, you know, we, we're, we're at a critical point in terms of understanding and thinking about what our data rights are. And I think we're like Neanderthals when it comes to data rights, because we basically for the last 15 years handed so much over to corporations and our tendency is uh, to, you know, just uh, hand stuff over and then later on figure out the cost. And I think that the costs are now going to become pretty extreme. And I think governments you know, has the potential to uh, to grab a lot of data in this process. But should we in the West, in the United States, should we be more fearful of the corporations like Apple or Google or Facebook or of the government? Is the government the solution or the problem to, to surveillance and, and data privacy, particularly in this time of, 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 of virus, in the age of, of, of the coronavirus? Look, I think we have we we don't have the time to do this properly, right? Doing it properly would take would it takes a process of basically giving where a large portion of the country and of the population actually understand what their data is and why they they need rights over it, and that they start using and demanding technology that gives them the ability to be able to have some degree of control of that data. We don't have time to go through that process, and we don't have time, and we don't have that technology in place. And so I think that today, you know, we have a set of companies. It's not one company, right? Because when I, I mean, when I started my career in computing, it was it was all Microsoft all the time, right? And so um, I, I think that the fact that we have a, a set of companies here is actually a, it, it's better than it just being one company, right? And so that is, um, uh, so I would encourage, you know, I'm hoping that we can, work with those companies and that each of those companies will sort of figure out different stances as it relates to the government and as it relates to data rights here. And that then we can use that to figure out exactly what we should, you know, what is a norm that we think is, is, uh, is, is acceptable. But our process, our democratic process of 
building consensus of education, building consensus is just like woefully ill-prepared for something that in the space of two weeks has, you know, put the entire freaking country on lockdown. It's just like this, this is a, this is a time when, you know, you know, uh, most decisions are going to be made by, you know, uh, by individuals in, in, um, in, in government and in corporations without very little input from users or population or shareholders or citizens. What should entrepreneurs be um, focused on now in terms of, of startups? You, you see very early stage companies. You were, you've been an investor in some of, some of, the, some of the big early stage, uh, as an early stage investor in some of the, the most successful internet companies. If, for somebody out there who's a technologist who, who who maybe has been laid off, who wants to start a company, what are the areas where it's obvious we need fixes, solutions? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that running into you know this new decade, you know, you know, it was clear, you know, last year it was clear a couple of years ago that we needed to start doing things differently, and I think that this crisis, you know, just hones the mind in a way that um, nothing else can. Uh, and, um, I think that there's a, I think there's a screaming need for people to, um, you know, to sort of innovate and re-innovate around critical areas of the internet. And I think that one of the things that we've seen in the last like two weeks, which has been pretty remarkable is that it's, it, it suddenly feels a little bit like, you know, it did 15 years ago again. In other words, there's, you know, I would say there's a lot more person-to-person sharing and comparing of apps and experiences and like, you know, what do you do and how do you do it? And I would say that, you know, to a great extent, I mean, the internet used to be a very collaborative space. And over the last 10 years, much of that collaboration has been productized, much of it by Facebook, by by others too, and, and very well productized at that, right? And then it's been monetized. And so if you were a startup, right, 15 years ago, you could just put out amazing products and just on the merits of your products, you get like huge user uh, adoption, right? So when we put out, you know, our mobile game dots, right, within the space of less than a month, we had 5 million users. That was probably six years ago, right? And you, you know, previously or like a month ago, in order to get that kind of adoption, you would have to, you know, you'd have to go out and do paid marketing to get it. You couldn't do it, or you couldn't do it by uh, organic person-to-person, you know, word of mouth. That had all been moved into paid marketing, and now it's moving back into organic sharing, right? And so we've seen extraordinary, you know, apps that were once dead have come back. Like, do you remember House Party, Andrew? Right. So House Party no. was a massively popular, briefly. Um, uh, service and then it got you know very well funded and then it kind of tanked and then it got you know acquired for a dime by Epic, the people who run Fortnite. That thing is now in the top ten of apps again. And who would have thunk that, right? I mean, I think when Fortnite acquired it or Epic acquired it, everybody was like, oh, it's kind of like there must be there must be some core technology they're buying. They didn't buy it for a lot of money. Yeah, John, what advice would you give uh, our audience at LitHub? Um uh publishers writers on the crisis what what should they be doing to survive i mean i think the creative people and media people is it, it it's definitely it's definitely a difficult time but it is an ex, 
it is a time again where if you think about what I've just been describing with startups having to like find audience through marketing and that being productized, I think it's the same thing for creative people. And so I think creative people have over the last 10 years, you know, gradually the platforms that were meant to serve them to get their work out have become the platforms that have monetized their work and shared only a bit with them. I think what we've seen in the last two weeks, and it and it it is it is it's only two weeks, so right, so it's early days, but we're seeing very sort of creative new forms of collaboration that are taking place, and that people are stitching together technologies that were, you know, sort of unrelated two weeks ago, but now seem to be sort of like fit well nicely together, and that you can use that to build an audience and do something. And so we're seeing sort of a lot of, we're seeing a lot of live shows happen online that I think would have been unimaginable um, a few weeks ago, right? We're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing celebrity, you know, Formula One drivers jump jump into games with normal people and, you know, play with them. And um, we're seeing sort of, we're seeing it's, there's this massive flattening that has taken place. And I think that that's an opportunity for people to, uh, you know, reach people in very different and new ways. Do you think the physical book can survive this crisis? I look, I, I thought, I, yes, um, because, and I think it may come out stronger because I think that, I think, I think it was evidence that, you know, the sort of the all digital dream, all digital book dream, um, that, you know, technologists believed um, every book will be digitalized and that will be that. And then, uh, you know, there'll be sort of a few monuments with books in them, but that will be that. I think already in the last five years, you could see that there was a, both a desire and a need for analog and, uh, and and really a desire more than a need, right? And, and I think now there is, um, you know, maybe a... a uh, an increased desire and and a need, right? Because people want to. We're, we're being completely absorbed into the digital world, and I do think that people want to. I want to at a certain time each day and really discipline myself, put it down, and to pick up something that is you know not you know pushing notifications at me and telling me that there's a new post about X Y Z that I need to read. So it's slowing us down. So f- finally, John. Uh... Give us, uh, give us a, your suggestion on uh, what people should be picking up, what analog book people should be reading in this crisis. One book. One book. Okay. Um, I, I don't do rules well, so I'm going to go with two. So I'm reading right now um, uh, All the Light We Cannot See, um, which is a novel. And then I'm also reading um, Elliot's Four Quartets. And so Elliot's Four Quartets I've been reading for... 18 months now. And that's not because I'm a really slow reader. Um, although I do like to try and read slow, it's because I'm just keep rereading it. Um, so, uh, so the first book I'm reading, um, all the light we cannot see is by Anthony Dewar. Um, and is, um, is a novel about the second world war, about a young blind girl in the second world war. And it's sort of, you know, I, I think we're living through a time right now, which is, uh, it's, you know, the best analog is like a war. And in this case, it's like 
hard to see and understand the enemy. But you know, this book is about a young blind girl who I'm, sh- you know, if you sort of put yourself into her character, it was hard for her to see or understand the enemy too. And so I, uh, so yeah, I started that a few days ago, and I'm I'm enjoying that a lot. I'm about halfway through it, and then the four quartets. I mean, you know, Elliot wrote them. I mean, they were over a period going into the Second World War, and you know, they are they are just so layered with meaning and understanding, and uh, just you know, sense of um, a sense of humanity and depth that um, every time I read them, there's more there. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.